Isaiah chapter 36. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have, you, that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Jua said to the Rabshaki, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshaki said, Has my master sent me to speak those words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshaki said, stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out with me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have you delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word, 
For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshaki. Father, we thank you that we have a friend in Jesus. And we thank you that through that friendship we can know you and we can be forgiven by you. Father, we thank you that because of this we can sit, read your word and live accordingly. Not on our own strength, but on the strength of your Holy Spirit and you living within us. Father, tonight would you give us what we lack? Would you teach us what we need to hear? Would you speak to us powerfully through your word? In Jesus' name, and for your glory, we pray. Amen. A huge thanks to Sheila for uh, reading chapter 36 earlier. Please turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 37, and we'll read that together. Isaiah 37. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land." The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king concerning, now the king heard concerning Turkaha, king of Cush, he has sent out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Talassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvium, the king of Hena, or the king of Eva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, 
which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood, stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem, whom you have mocked and reviled. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars and its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field, and like tender grass, like grass on the rooftops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down, I know you're going out, I know you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself and the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, or shoot an arrow, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisrosh, his god, Adramalech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Ershadon, his son, reigned in his place. This evening we're starting a short series looking at prayer. Uh, you have a sheet within your order of service that might be handy for you to follow if you choose to do so. And you see the title there says, Soul Searching Prayer. Uh, At the risk of oversimplifying slightly, prayer could be described as God's people talking to God, thanking him, asking him for help, among other things. There's much more to it than that, as we'll see this evening, and as we'll see in Sunday evenings to come. But if that's our definition, then prayer is something we see running through the entire Bible, 
God's people talking to God. And for God's people throughout the ages, and for his people today, it's something that they want to see running through their entire lives. But if you're anything like me, then you and I are not always initially hugely enthused by prayer. For me, it feels a little bit like exercise. I know I should do it. Often I don't want to, or I find an excuse not to. Often I feel indifferent, uh, perhaps nervous. Uh, Perhaps I don't know when to start when I pray. Uh, There are moments when I feel like I can't pray because of something I've done. Many of us in this room will have wonderful stories of God answering prayers. But there have been moments when it feels like we've been praying endlessly for something without anything happening. We go through spells when we pray regularly. And we go through spells, days on end, without speaking to God at all. Maybe that's just me. Whether you're in the same boat as me or not, the Bible has plenty to say to us on speaking to our Heavenly Father. And what it has to say is good news for us. We might at times have a fuzzy and colorless vision of what it means to pray. But the Bible paints a much bigger and much better picture of what it means to pray, which reshapes, refocuses our understanding of what prayer is. And so we'll be dotting throughout the whole Bible over the course of the weeks to come. This evening we're in Isaiah. And one of the great themes of Isaiah is having a firm faith in God's power to rescue his people. Faith seems like a nice idea, but does it work in practice? Asks Isaiah. It might look good on paper, but does it actually deliver when it's supposed to? Does it really work? Think of a sports coach trying a new formation or a new system for a sports team, a manager making a plan at work to take the company to new places. You want to believe it'll work, but will it actually work in the end? Well, the answer that Isaiah gives us is resoundingly clear. Yes, it does come good in the end. Not dependent on whatever faith we may have, but instead dependent on who God is. And tonight we have a a nuts and bolts example, a a boots on the ground example of King Hezekiah's faith in God being expressed in prayer. To put it simply, it's a foundation and a consequence of King Hezekiah's relationship with God, prayer. And before we take a closer look at Hezekiah's prayer, in order to understand the richness of the words that King Hezekiah prays, We have to fully understand what's happening around about him. That's why we read two chapters of Isaiah for the sake of a prayer that lasts a mere five verses. No apologies from me. A quick look at the backdrop of Hezekiah's prayer, and it's not a positive one. It's the first point on your notice sheet there. You might find it helpful to follow. God's people and God's king face opposition from an unbelieving world opposition from an unbelieving world. It's a scene from history that would look right at home in any Hollywood blockbuster, isn't it? Think perhaps Lord of the Rings, 300, Kingdom of Heaven, something along those lines. Hezekiah is the king of Judah, and he stirred up a revolt against Assyria. The king of Assyria is none too happy, and in his aggressive response to quell this uprising, we see cities falling in Judah one by one under the might of Assyrian soldiers, led by Rabshakeh the general. And now they arrive at the incredibly important city of Jerusalem, and Hezekiah is trapped on the inside. 
And so two officials, Eliakim, Shebna, come out to reap Rashaka, the general, and he puts on a master class of military propaganda. Rabshaka never acknowledges Hezekiah as King Hezekiah, but King Sennacherib is always referred to as King Sennacherib. Rabshaka clearly speaks in the language of Judah so that everyone in the city will hear and understand. His speech is so intimidating and bullish. Jerusalem is so helpless and hopeless that all Eliakim and Shebna can do in chapter 36, verse 11, is to ask Rabshakeh to negotiate in a different language so as not to upset the citizens. It's hardly a fierce defense. Rabshakeh politely declines the request by speaking even louder. The Assyrians are not short of confidence. And why would they be? They have all the military and political advantage they could possibly want. And the heart of Sennacherib's message through Rabshakeh can be found in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 36. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. They say, don't be deceived into trusting God. Your God is weak and we are strong. The Egyptians, they can't help you. They were licking their wounds that we, the Assyrians, inflicted. Nobody can help you, especially not this king of yours, especially not this god of yours. Have any of the other kings of the nations managed to deliver their people? Have the other gods managed to save their people? Don't be fooled into thinking that your god can save you now. He doesn't even offer you chariots or swords. He offers you mere words. Are the words of your God enough to win you this war? What hope do you possibly have clinging to the promises of your God in the face of hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands in the armies of Assyria? To whom will you, God's people, Jerusalem, to whom will you swear allegiance? It's a big Big question for God's people in the city under siege. What value is their faith in an invisible God who offers mere words in the face of such a large, fierce army who are on such a winning streak as this? To whom will they listen? It's a choice between two kings for God's people. God's anointed king Hezekiah or the king who opposes him. And we mustn't allow that situation to seem in any way alien or unfamiliar for us sitting here tonight. Most of us will not have been in cities under siege, but the world in which we inhabit hasn't really changed. The similarities are very, very clear. The forces that oppose God are alive and active today. We face a world that asks us every day to abandon our trust in Jesus and instead swear allegiance to the forces that stand opposed to God. We'd have many earthly reasons to believe that faith in God isn't sensible. Perhaps you've heard people asking, if your God is so good, so powerful, then why are churches across the country dwindling and closing? Perhaps it's more personal. Maybe it's the pressure from the powers of the world showing the promises that God makes of joy, of satisfaction, and instead offering alternatives. Questions such as what possible relevance Our hope could words that are thousands of years old have in a world where we have surely moved past all this superstitious and backward nonsense. 
Some of us involved in, in church work, overseas mission, may have heard questions, I certainly have, such as, when are you going to actually start making a living for yourself? The opposition of this world threatens to squeeze our faith dry. It would be very easy to despair. It would be very, very easy to doubt. It would be very, very easy to give up altogether. There were those that opposed God and his people in Isaiah's day by sowing seeds of doubt, by displaying impressive shows of power, and that has not changed. The message is the same. Do not be deceived into trusting God. Instead, swear allegiance to the world, and things will be much, much easier. I hope we see the similarities and the relevance of a book like Isaiah in a day like today. What a desperate situation. And Hezekiah is a desperate man staring down the jaws of defeat, the jaws of death. Which moves us on to the second uh, section this evening, his prayer, the response of a believing king. The response of a believing king. Hezekiah greets the news of the Assyrian threat with an act of very, very public self-humiliation. Verse 1 of chapter 37, he tears his robes, covers himself with sackcloth, goes straight to the house of the Lord. And again, after he receives an aggressive letter from the Assyrians in verse 14, he goes straight to the house of the Lord. And that tells us a lot about Hezekiah. How tempting must it have been to try and muster as many troops as he could, or perhaps to ride out swinging his sword above his head in defiance. Or maybe the sensible thing to do would have been to negotiate some sort of deal, some sort of compromise, perhaps even to bow the knee to Assyria. But Hezekiah is not a man wallowing in pride. He's not a man wallowing in self-pity. Hezekiah's actions are an admission of complete hopelessness. Jerusalem needs to be delivered. Jerusalem needs to be rescued. But in every way imaginable, King Hezekiah does not have the strength to do it. But prayer is not his last resort. It's his first priority. He goes straight to the house of the Lord. His response is steadfast faith and both the foundation and the fruit of that faith is God-centered prayer. What does he say? Well, firstly, Hezekiah draws on God's character. He draws on God's character. Chapter 37, verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. The Assyrian king might have brought nation after nation to their knees, but King Hezekiah's response draws on the truth that the God of Judah created those very nations, including Assyria. More than that, the same God still stands as the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. Something that King Sennacherib of Assyria seems to have neglected or ignored and has certainly challenged. The king of Assyria might boast an impressive CV, but it melts into insignificance when held up next to the God on his throne above the angels of heaven. The ranks of Assyrian soldiers and war machines are impressive, but they have nothing on the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. I was in Barcelona this past week on holiday and went on the, the cable cart, which gives you wonderful views of the city, but it's quite high up. And I have a, a love-hate relationship with heights. 
mostly hate. And the cable car began swaying from side to side slightly too much for my liking. And I, I nervously looked around the, the death tin that I was in to see how everyone else was responding. And one of the other passengers that caught my eye was an older gentleman who works for the cable car company. And he was totally unfazed, completely steady, and not in any way worried or bothered. He even turned to one passenger and said, it happens a lot. There's no need to worry. And when I saw him, when I realized who he was, my perspective on the whole situation totally shifted. I could take comfort from him. I could take comfort from knowing who he was and knowing his history, knowing his experience in that cable car. I could totally, totally reassess the situation. And I could let go of the Italian man next to me who I've been clinging to. (laughs) And by fixing his eyes on God and who God is, Hezekiah can totally reassess the situation that he is in. Sennacherib, Rabshakeh, the Assyrian army no longer have the odds stacked in their favor. No, no, not when the God of Jerusalem is the God that King Hezekiah prays to. Hezekiah's prayer is a faithful, God-honoring rejection to the tempting offer of Assyria, and it retunes, reorientates King Hezekiah's understanding of the situation. It's not a spiritual pep talk. King Hezekiah isn't psyching himself up in the mirror. He is drawing on God's character as the almighty and all-powerful God who is more powerful than anything, anything opposing him. It's exactly what God's people need to know in a time of desperation. They need to know who they're praying to. And as they pray, they need to draw on God's character to properly understand his authority over situations like this. There is no need in the life of his people that God does not have the power to meet. God wants us to know who we are speaking to when we pray. Prayer is not an impersonal stab in the dark to see if somebody somewhere out there will listen to me. It's a prayer to a God who has shown us what he is like throughout the history of him and his people. And when we pray, he wants us to take nourishment, perspective from that. And that's why the first thing Jesus invites his disciples to pray is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. And in my prayers, the understanding that I have of God to whom I speak so often, so often falls short of this understanding that King Hezekiah has. In my prayers, my view of God is not big enough. And it means that when I pray, I can be prone to doubting that he can answer my prayers. If I pray to God concerned that he is not powerful enough to overcome opposition, then my prayers will look half-hearted, They'll sound insincere. If I am not totally drawing on God's character, trusting trusting in him as the God who is mighty to save, then I will feel the need to live my life, my relationship with God on my own strength, praying to him less and less. All because I forget that the God to whom I speak is the mighty Lord, commander of the angel armies of heaven, who created everything. How much different would our prayer lives look if we spent time at the start of each prayer reminding ourselves, thanking God for how holy, how perfect, and how mighty he is.
How many of our concerns would be met simply by drawing on God's character as we pray? How comforting to know that this same God is powerful to hear our prayers. No prayer too desperate, and he is powerful to respond. So, for example, when I pray for students to come to know Jesus, I can be confident drawing on his character as a saving God. Or maybe if we feel the BDI of illness or personal loss staring at us, we can be comforted in our prayers as we draw on God's greatness over all of these things. That's why the Bible and prayer go hand in hand with one another. As you read and you better understand what this God is like to whom you pray, your prayer life comes to, comes to life. And we have a confidence with which we can approach God. Hezekiah draws on God's character. And we should too. Secondly, Hezekiah pleads with God to rescue. Verse 17. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood, stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand. Hezekiah stands before God on behalf of the people of the city and pleads with God to intervene. Every other nation has fallen, Each God is proven to be a false God, proven to be a lie. They were no gods. They were the work of men's hands, wood, stone, destroyed. Now another God is being challenged. Now another God is being mocked. This God of Jerusalem. But Hezekiah knows something that the Assyrians don't. With this refocused perception of the reality around about him, Hezekiah knows that this God will not be put into the same bag as all of these other gods. Hezekiah knows that this God is the true and living God who is for the salvation of his people and who cannot be overwhelmed. God will prove to the nations, he will prove to his people, he will prove to his enemies that he is God. He will do it by rescuing his people who have put their trust in him. And Hezekiah has faith that God is not only able, as we've seen, but he is willing to do this. His only hope is to pray and to plead with the God of the universe. He may be enthroned above the angels in heaven, but he is not too far away to rescue. He is a God who inclines his ear to hear. He is a God who hears all the words of those that mock him. Not one word spoken against him goes unnoticed. He is a God that wants to meet and will meet the absolute fundamental need of every single one of his people. Rescue from his enemies. And we can have certainty as we pray for rescue to God. Because we know Jesus. He is our faithful king who wholeheartedly trusted God in the face of opposition. Hezekiah takes this prayer onto his lips to God. But our perfect king Jesus takes our prayers on behalf to God and intercedes for us. And the most important things that God's people have to be rescued from are sin, Satan, rebellion against God. But like the people of Jerusalem in Isaiah 36 and 37, 
we are in absolutely no fit state to deal with it. We have to plead with God to rescue us in our prayers daily because only God, only God can fight our sin through the power of his Holy Spirit. Only God can conquer Satan. Only God can silence rebellion against him. And we plead with him to do that in our day-to-day lives. It's why Jesus invites his disciples to ask God to deliver us from evil. And so his people follow his example. We say, deliver us from evil. Save us from evil. Rescue us. Rescue us from your enemies, God. I can and I must pray and ask God to rescue me from my own sins and give my life to him instead. Those sins in my life that I'm only too eager to tolerate, that might lead me away from God, I must plead with God to rescue me from them. I must pray and ask God to rescue me from listening to them and instead for me to build up my own trust in him. So Hezekiah draws on God's character. He pleads with God to rescue. And thirdly, Hezekiah points all glory to God. 20b. Let me read the whole of verse 20. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Even when there's an army at the doorstep, Hezekiah is not concerned that his neck is on the line, but rather that God's name is glorified. Hezekiah doesn't pray to break glass in case of emergency. He's not saying, God, get me out of here and save me sharpish. He wants the nations to know that God is God. He wants God to intervene so that God's people continue to exist as living proof of God's glory. In contrast to the other false gods, real salvation here for his people puts the unique reality of God on display for all the kingdoms of the earth to see. His glory takes priority over Hezekiah, for Hezekiah. And it's another priority that we can apply to all of our praying. Nowhere is there a promise that we will be healthy, wealthy, loved in this life. But what we do know is that every knee will bow one day before Jesus. And because we know who Jesus is, because we know that God's purposes always stand, we can confidently pray in a way that cries, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done, as Jesus taught us to. So many of my prayers fall on the lines of of telling God everything that I want and need. Only too often do I expect God to twist himself to my desires and ends. But Hezekiah doesn't. And neither should we. How might my prayer life look if actually my chief aim wasn't my own comfort but God's glory? What might be exposed if I prayed in such a way that didn't try to bend God's will to my own, but instead bent my will to God's glory? What if we prayed, Father, I I don't have this thing, whatever it is, the job I want, the relationship I want, the family I want, and it hurts. But I pray that you will glorify yourself in my life because you are good and because you have saved me.
Wouldn't that build up a faith in God that could survive and endure when life presses hard in on us? Let me land the plane. The last thing we'll look at this evening is the victory of an almighty God. The victory of an almighty God. These are wonderful verses for God's people and frightening verses for his enemies. God says concerning the Assyrians in verse 28 of chapter 37, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. It sounds a bit graphic, but it's the way that the Assyrians used to treat their prisoners of war. And now the Assyrians are soon to be the prisoners of war. They're soon to be on the losing side. Verse 35 says, God speaking, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And then King Sennacherib meets a grisly end in verse 38. The God that he worships can't protect him from the hands of his children, his sons. Not in the same way that God can protect and rescue his people in Jerusalem. What a contrast between Sennacherib and Hezekiah. What a contrast between the God of Assyria and the God of Jerusalem. And you see how God has answered Hezekiah's prayer here. God has seen as Hezekiah asked him to. God has heard as Hezekiah asked him to. God's response demonstrates his character. God's response demonstrates his ability to rescue. God's response claims all the glory that he is due. Our faith would be mere fantasy if our God was mere fantasy, but the reality could not be further from the truth. The victory here is the victory of God alone. And moments like this show us, as Isaiah wants us to know, that faith in God comes good even in desperate circumstances. Moses, moments like this show us that God is powerful and mighty to save, mighty to answer, prayer, mighty to rescue in moments of sheer helplessness. Not only are we praying to an almighty God, we are praying to an almighty victorious God. In our prayers, we are talking to the king of the winning team. And Jesus is our guarantee that any plea to God for rescue from his enemies will be answered resoundingly. Jesus' death is the guarantee that our sin, opposing a holy God, has been defeated and will one day be utterly eradicated. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee that death, opposing the God of life, has been defeated and will one day be utterly eradicated. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have blasted the way through to God. And we can speak to him in prayer as a child would to a father. God's people will will face severe opposition from his enemies and we need him to intervene. Prayer is not our last resort, but the building blocks and the overflow of our faith in him as it was for Hezekiah. Prayer is what expresses our dependency on God 
And it offers us hope in this life and hope for an eternity with him without anything to separate us from him. Chalmers Church Edinburgh, let's allow Isaiah 37 to color in our prayer life from now on. Let's remind ourselves when we pray of who we're really praying to by praying God's characteristics back to him. Let's allow that to comfort us and shift our understanding of the world around about us as we fix our eyes on him. Let's pray to God and ask him to rescue us from sin. Let's pray and ask him to help us in the fight against the rebellion in our lives which opposes him. And let's pray in such a way that seeks God's glory far before, far above our own. Let me do that for us now. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned far above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Father, would you incline your ear? Would you listen to our prayers? Would you hear us as we speak to you this evening, in the weeks, months, years ahead? Would you rescue us, Father, from the sin and rebellion in our lives? We thank you, Father, that Jesus stands as our guarantee that one day we will be with you for eternity without any opposition to you. Father, we pray that you would take all the glory in our lives. And we pray that you would shape us in such a way where our prayers prioritize you, put you in the right place in our lives, on the throne of our hearts. Father, help us not to leave here tonight cold, but to leave here tonight warmed by the truth of the wonderful good news of Jesus. And help us to live in such a way that glorifies you. And as we pray to you, we glorify you there as well. In Jesus' name, amen.